Christmas. What a wonderful way to start this Sabbath, this Sabbath that is doubly blessed. We are not only celebrating and remembering the act of incarnation, but we're also enjoying this time of rest and respite. So our prayer today is that you have experienced God in a wonderful way as you remember what he has done and that you may find something of use as we converse together. Let me invite you now to pray as we delve into Scripture. Jesus, we are so glad today. We are so glad because amidst the ribbons and the wrapped presents, the family meals and the festive decorations, the gatherings and the garlands, you remain the apex of the time, the reason for the season, the one who was born in Bethlehem and who from a manger made it possible for us to receive a crown. So we thank you so much for all you have done, and we ask that you continue to move in and through our conversations, for we pray in your name. Amen. Joseph Ben-Gurion was prime minister of Israel. And Ben-Gurion had the difficult task of rallying a country back together. I mean, how can you recover trauma? When basically every single one of your citizens has experienced the death of a loved one, where do you go? How do you find justice? How do you galvanize your country and believe that there is still something for you to do? Ben-Gurion understand that the pursuit for justice needs to be birth out of the restitution and restoration. Restitution of evil com evils committed and the restoration of a people who need somebody to take responsibility. And so Ben-Gurion concocted a plan. Oh, he did so with the collaboration of several Mossad agents. Argentina was celebrating its 150th anniversary of independence, and so Ben-Gurion sent a delegation from Israel on a special chartered flight to celebrate with the Argentines. What no one knew at the time was that this delegation was comprised of Mossad agents, and that their purpose wasn't just to celebrate this country's independence, but rather it was well, it was to recapture Otto Adolf Eichmann. Adolf had been the mastermind of the final solution enacted by the Nazi regime. He had escaped from an American detention camp in Germany. 
had gone to Lower, Sa Lower Saxony and through a priest had received papers to immigrate with a new name, a new identity to Argentina. He had lived in Argentina for several years and spent 10 years in hiding in Lower Saxony. By all accounts, he was a great father. He was a committed member of his church. He was invested in an upstanding member in the community. Eichmann was the perfect neighbor. As the Mossad agents wrestled him to the floor and then a doctor sedated him, placed him on the plane and then experienced some death-defying and tense moments at the airport waiting for the flight plan to be approved, the Mossad agents would comment on how that man that had terrorized their dreams now seemed so meek, so mild, so feeble. Eichmann thought that he had outrun his past, but his past had caught up to him. He was transported to Jerusalem, and Hannah Arendt, in her book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, notes how banal the evil truly is. How much of a pen and pencil pusher Eichmann truly was, how unimportant and uninspiring the man looked before he hung on the gallows. The, path has, the past tends to catch up to us. And in today's lesson, we talk about Moses, that central character in the book of Deuteronomy. We think about his path and the notions of it catching up to him. There are two primary scenes in Moses's life that I want to point to. The first you can find in your Bible if you open it to the book of Numbers, the 20th chapter. You know the story. You've heard it. The people of Israel are once again complaining. They are angry because there's no water to drink in the desert. God commands Moses to speak to a rock, and Moses, in a moment of despondence, strikes the rock. He says, here you rabble, must we fetch water for you? And it is that moment, that instance of the lack of judgment that catches up with Moses. You know, this whole movement towards the promised land will end with Moses looking at the Jews cross into Canaan from atop of a mountain. I want to read to you that scene that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 34. Travel with me to the summit of Mount Nebo. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo on the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, out of all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea. 
the Negev and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of palms as far as, far as Zorah. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said I will give it to, the, to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over to it. And thus ends the life of Moses. Now we've spoken throughout this quarter about how Deuteronomy is a sermon. A sermon that is pushing Israel to step into their call. To pursue this covenantal relationship with God. And it seems like the story ends on a bittersweet note. For you see the majestic Canaan flowing milk and honey. And you can witness the spirit, that same spirit that mightily dwelt in Moses now descend onto Joshua. It's a bittersweet note because the old prophet steps on top of Nebo and sees the land that he was called to inhabit, the culmination of all the trials, all the tribulations, the almost impossible journey that began when he ran to tend sheep. When he heard a burning bush, and now he's so close that he can almost touch it. But alas, he can't cross over. It's a bittersweet ending. And it's almost as if the author of Deuteronomy understands this. And so he leaves us with a postscript. Since then, verse 10, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders. The Lord sent him to do in Egypt to Pharaoh and to all these officials, to all his officials, to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. And so our sense of irony and the tears that began to stream down our face at thinking of the scene on top of Mount Nebo are placated a bit by the postscript, the idea that there has been no prophet in the long litany of Israelite prophets quite like Moses. But that's not the end of the story. The Jews have this long traditional of extra-biblical accounts. And one of the most widely read in the, new, in the intertestamental period was termed the Ascension of Moses. And the Ascension of Moses dealt with this thing that for New Testament readers was clear and evident. Rose Moses was no longer on top of Mount Nebo. Moses was in heaven. We know this from uh, stories like the Transfiguration. But the Ascension of Moses deals with some really interesting details. Much like the, present, uh, the presence of the tempter in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the Ascension of Moses is populated by this dark figure. 
who accuses Moses, who reminds Moses of all the errors of his way. Satan, Satan is there as the accuser, crying out for the blood of the Egyptian that Moses has murdered, who continues to cry from the ground. It is that which threatens his ascent. And also, also this moment of weakness, Moses' lack of patience, catching up to him once again, now as the scene switches from Mount Nebo to heaven. The New Testament picks up on that story. Richard Bachman, New Testament scholar, has done quite a bit to reconstruct the tale in light of the text that we are about to read. I'm referring, of course, to one of the most hotly contested epistles in all of the New Testament, the epistle of Jude. And it's contested because it buttresses its arguments by quoting several extra-biblical accounts. Jude 9, verse 9. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him from, for, from or for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you, yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. Obviously, Jude is dealing with Christians and with the ungodly people and how the Christian community has been called to persevere in the midst of ungodliness. Strangely enough, though, and to the delight of many, a biblical sleuth, he decides to build up his case by referring back to the ascension of Moses. So what is actually happening? What is this debate, this duel that Michael and Satan have over the body of Moses. Well, the ascension of Moses, in Bachman's words, tell us that what is being held in the balance is if Moses is fit enough to be in the presence of God. So it's not actual his actual physical body that is being bantered about, it's his status. How can we, as human beings, well, how can we justify the presence of a sinner like Moses who murdered an Egyptian and who lost his temper and struck a rock to now be in God's presence in his throne of glory? The accuser reminds Moses. But notice, notice what Michael does. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, remember, Bachman states, and I agree with the case that it has to do with Moses' status before God, did not dare himself to did not himself dare to condemn him for slander. So who is Michael condemning for slander? Well, if Bachman is right, then the one who is being condemned for slander is Moses. And much in the same way that Zechariah 3 points out, Michael is unwilling to jump in and judge Moses for slander. Now, we need to understand what this word means. So in our current vernacular, the word slander means 
to tell lie, to, to tell lies about someone or to defame someone. But in the New Testament, in the mind of Jude, the idea of slander actually has to do with our inability to live according to the law. And so what the, de- what the devil is asking, what Satan is pushing us to recognize is that Moses, well, Moses, Moses cannot stand before God because he, the Egyptians' blood continues to cry because the yell and the anger hurled at the rock continues to echo through time and space. And so, Moses is undeserving and unrighteous. Michael, however, refuses to slander, instead saying, the Lord rebuke you. And again, the original language, if we believe that the word slander has to do with the law, then, and with judgment, then the last part of verse 9 must also be related to judgment. And so Michael says, Yahweh judge you. What is happening here? What is this whole idea of Moses? And how does the death of Moses become something that you a spiritual lesson or something that you and I can draw upon on this Christmas morning. I can almost see you comfortable at home, hot cocoa in your hand, wrapping paper, ribbons, tinsel. And Christmas is, after all, the time of year when we say that the past is going to catch up to us. What does that old Christmas song say? You better watch out. You better not fret. You better not cry. I'm telling you why. Because Santa Claus is coming to town and he's making a list and checking it twice. And he's going to find out who's been naughty or nice. I've told my kids year after year that today is the day that the past catches up to them. Eichmann surely understood what the notion of being unable to escape from your past is, being dragged onto that airplane. And here, in the heavenly courtroom, it seems like Moses' mistakes will continue to catch up to him time and time again, as now the accuser is saying, unrighteous, undeserving. But then you hear it. You hear the voice of Michael. Michael who refuses to use the law to condemn. Michael who turns to Yahweh and say, may he judge you. You see, Moses was called the greatest prophet who ever lived. And you, on this Christmas day, you have received the gift of a crown. God has called you his son and his daughter. But there's this inner voice, this inner dialogue, this fear that you feel inside that has kept you up at night. That dark dread that God is like Santa Claus, that he has made a list, that he has checked it twice, and that your name appears on the naughty side. But today, today it's time for your past to catch up to you. 
Well, actually, it's not your past. It's his past. See, as the world turns its collective minds to the manger, we realize that both manger, cross, and empty tomb are your are part of our collective pasts. As the body of Christ, we no longer fear the past because we have been promised a mansion in glory. And so every time you hear that inner dialogue, that voice, as Michael and the accuser continue to struggle for your status, here and now, won't you hear the voice of God that says, your past is caught up to you. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come enter. Come enter into the presence of the Lord. So may you have a merry, merry Christmas. And Joey, Merry Christmas to you. Merry How has Christmas. your morning been? Has it been as full of, of presents or has it been hectic like mine? Uh, not hectic. Um, we, try to, we try to keep it a little bit peaceable <laughs> on this day. But yeah, it's, um, it is a special time to have uh, a Christmas beyond Sabbath, right? There's something special about having Christmas Day. It makes Christmas more special, I think, to have it on Sabbath. Although for, for pastors, it can mean a, a, lot, a lot of extra work as well. <laughs> well, you know what, Joey? I look forward every week. My favorite part of the week is our Sabbath lunch. And we've mm. talked about this before, how uh, we both uh, like food, but Sabbath meals taste different, maybe because mm -hmm. they're unhurried and unrushed. So, I mean, I love our friends out there, but I can't wait to get out of church and enjoy a Christmas meal that happens to also be a Sabbath meal. I know my kids can't wait because um, they, they still have to unwrap presents. So um, what do you think about this idea of Moses and Deuteronomy and how this story, how his story ends? But not quite because we, we see kind of the intertestamental writers writing about this in the ascension of Moses. And then in one of probably the most bizarre passages in the whole of scripture, Jude says, ah, by the way, if you have forgotten, there's this other part to the story. Michael and Satan are, ras are wrestling over the body of Moses. I know. There's so many interesting things about this, this lesson, this story, how Jude approaches it, how Moses' story ends. Um, a lot of questions that are brought up, but that principle that you, you drew out, that the past catches up with us, and what does that mean for Christians? I think that is so powerful and so beautiful, um, especially, like you said, in this season of Christmas when, when uh, we sometimes sing about the past catching up with us. Um, that is an interesting song that we, 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 we teach to our kids, you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why. <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting thing. Um, but the past does catch up with Moses. And I've always been a little bit uncomfortable about that because when I look at what Moses did in Numbers 20, I know it was wrong, but it's so understandable to me. You know, like there's just times 
Moses has been dealing with these same people and their faithlessness for years, and it's frustrating. I, I you know, it's it's one thing if somebody pokes at at something or does something wrong one time or two times, but by the twentieth or thirtieth time, you're like, can't you just learn this lesson? I mean, as a parent, mm-hmm. don't we sometimes get frustrated at our kids saying, "Man, I've told you this so many times before. Why can't you just get it right?" Right, so I, I understand his frustration at at what the Israelites do, complaining again about God providing, and um, as the lesson points out, God continued to provide over and over again. They they always had water, so why can't they just trust mm. that God is going to give them water again? So I kind of understand his frustration. I don't know, Miguel. Do you-, uh, you know what, Joey? I read it again this week, and uh, it was it was difficult to read. Because you know how it's going to end. And you have this heartbreaking picture that that Deuteronomy 34 paints where he gets, he's so close to Cain and he can see everything. And he's not going, that that almost seems even more cruel than than just to leave leave Moses at the bottom of the mountain. Um, And I was like, really, was that? that bad was what he does in numbers 20 that bad i mean i was reading it this week and i i actually began the week feeling a bit more than just empathy actually feeling quite a bit of sympathy for moses because there's a lot of restraint there i don't know i probably would have not just struck the rock i would have struck the people as well um but I don't think, Joey, I don't think the problem that in the mistake that Moses makes is is just striking the rock. Mm. Um, I think it's it's what he says after. Mm. Uh, must we draw water? Yeah. And I can I you can see the image, right? This man who you you're right has been tested for 40 years. Um, and now he's he's had it, so he strikes this rock, mm. and the people are afraid. And he turns to them and he says, "The same power mm. of the God that made the waters bitter, the same power of the God that, after your mistakes at Belpior, made snakes to bite mm. and to sting." And to kill you. The same power of the God that split the Red Sea and drowned the horse and the rider. That power is now going to be co-opted by me. Hmm. And I'm frustrated and angry. Yeah. And so know well that I can turn that power against you. Hmm. And as a, as a parent, um, and I know you, you mentioned how we get frustrated as parents. I think as a parent, one of the the most traumatic things that we can do to our children Mm. is we can allow, when we allow the difference in strength, authority, experience, Mm. uh, resources to be weaponized and then to turn against our kids. Mm. Like my kid will make a mistake and I'm like, Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving, they're all canceled now. And 
that the, the damage that that does, mm. uh, the damage that words said in anger do, mm. um, and the the capacity that they have to instill fear in people in, in people's hearts. Mm. I think by the end of the week of the year of the week, I I understood a little more why mm. God said that cannot be part of our future going into mm. kingdom. We have to start in here. Yeah. We have to start removed from all that baggage and trauma that the people had in the desert. And by you weaponizing my power mm. and your position against them, we cannot have that be a part of our narrative mm. going forward. Wow. Yeah, so it's not just what it's not just that Moses got frustrated. It's the message that he sent about who God is um in in his actions and in his words. He he co-ops the power of God and uses it for his own purposes. He uses it to vent his frustration. And really it's it's the sin of blasphemy, right? Because in a way that he, Moses is saying that I am alongside God and I am doing this for you. He uses that word we, which I find so fascinating that he says that because, you know, they say that crisis reveals character. Do you think on some level, after all this time, Moses sort of believed that it was him, that it wasn't just God, that, that, that through the, you know, because as, as you're, as you lead for a long time, and if you are successful as a leader, it's very easy to loosen that dependence on God and become more, to start to think, well, it's because of my talents, it's because of my ability, it's because of my wisdom. Do you think on some level, um, Moses believed that, that it was him, that it was nobody else, that God couldn't have used anybody else, God's using me because I am me. Mm -hmm. And that came out in that moment of anger. Yeah, I think I think that's what what you're saying is is actually really nuanced, Joey. And I would point us to think about how Moses starts his call. Right? Mm. He's like, I can't speak. I don't want to go. He's like this really hesitant, a fully dependent leader. Yeah. And I think the temptation for all of us, as you're pointing out, I think so masterfully is after we've led for a while and we've been really successful, we start thinking, well, it's me mm. and I am able to do this and I delivered you from Egypt and I was able to lead you into Canaan and I, I, I. And what that does is it, it creates, I think you're absolutely right when you say it's the sin of blasphemy, but it's also the sin of just creating trauma and traumatizing mm. people because when we use language like that when we use when we use our position which is what Moses is doing mm -hmm. in order to instill fear in the hearts of people mm. then we've gone we've we've presented a gospel that is counterfeit we've yeah we've spent quite a bit of time and again I'll, I'll plug this in for our viewers watching if you have nothing to do over the break um the rise and fall of mars hill mm. is a wonderful wonderful podcast that looks 
at the toxicity that comes when we use religious language to leverage our power and our position and how that creates trauma um, that follows people. Mm -hmm. Mars Hill closed nine years ago, and there's people still dealing with the fallout of that trauma. Mm. And so because it's never been addressed. And so God cannot let it just stay unaddressed. Mm. And so he addresses it. um, And he says, I'm sorry, you're a great leader, but you cannot go with them into Canaan. Mm. And so, again, I I started the week feeling uncomfortable, like like you've expressed. But I think after the week and after thinking about how when we weaponize language yeah. to instill fear, particularly religious language, we we have a huge responsibility being careful with the language we use because the language we use allows people to form a mental picture of who God is. Hmm. And Moses here is forming a mental part, a mental picture of God that that is an idol and mm-hmm. so it's not just blasphemy it's not just anger it's not just trauma it's also idolatry yeah you know bringing up that uh, that podcast the rise and fall of mars hill i i remember one episode where um his executive interviewing his, his executive former executive assistant and she is someone who cared for him deeply began um this whole journey together but um, at some point in that journey, uh, somebody had asked her what it's like to work with Mark. And, you know, she said a lot of good things about him, but then also said, I wish that he had older men in his life who could speak into him and challenge him. Um, and somehow that got back to uh, Mark. And then she's she's brought in. And what she is, what she's accused of is not slander. It's blasphemy for speaking against a man of God and speaking against God himself, which basically is saying that Mark Driscoll saw himself as speaking for God, right? Um, Which is mind-blowing to think. And yet, is that so large of a leap for someone who... um, gets all of these compliments and seen is put on this pedestal and is respected so much. I mean, we we are now in the age of the celebrity pastor, right? And it's so easy to fall into that trap mm. of of thinking that it's me. Mm. And this story, I think, is a, a resounding reminder of the danger of that journey, of going to that space, and how important it is to fight that at every every impulse. Because, um, you know, Moses was going through a lot. He had just lost his sister, mm-hmm. right? Right before this, he's grieving. I can't imagine that he's not grieving here. So he's grieving. He's going through a lot. These people are poking at him. He's a leader who's done amazing things for God. And yet, none of that is an excuse when, like you said, he weaponizes his power, his position. Um, he blasphemes against God. He commits the sin of adultery, of, of idolatry, and and then and then gives them this picture of God that is not accurate. None of it is an excuse for that. 
I think I think what you're saying, um, and I wanted to reread this passage in Numbers 20 right now just to make sure that it was fresh in my memory. Uh, Mark, uh, Mark Driscoll, for those of you who don't know, was the pastor of a mega church in Seattle called uh, Mars Hill. And so that's that's kind of what we're referring to. Um, and being a non-denominational celebrity pastor, the, the cry and the plea that a lot of people in his inner circle, uh, as you're mentioning, Joey, were, were uttering is, you need to find someone to submit to, mm. whether it's, and, and they use several names that, that we know, uh, Piper, John Piper, um, and uh, people from the Christian uh, Christian Coalition, people from Acts 29, which is another, these are big uh, non-denominational networks of pastors that are that are, have plenty of experience. Um People even in, in the reform tradition, which Mark, which Mark upheld, somebody, find somebody to submit to. And uh, Mark's, Mark's response and his mm-hmm. reticence to, be, to submit himself to Piper or to Lori or to any of these other pastors uh, was simply, well, my church is bigger than mm-hmm. theirs. And so numbers were used to silence the voices mm-hmm. um, that that people uh, or, or the people that could speak into Mark's life. There's, there's a wonderful little, uh, another episode in the podcast. Now you really are going to have to watch it, friends, um, where they're at an X-29, at an X-29 conference. And X-29, for those of you who don't know, is a non-denominational cohort of churches that are trying to plant, uh, plant churches. And, um, Mark kind of takes over the conversation mm. and he kind of silences everyone else around mm. him. And these are pastors with a lot more experience and a lot more gravitas uh, than Mark did. In the story that we just read, it's interesting, right, that uh, Moses is asked by God to take the staff, but also to take Aaron with them. Mm. And then there's the command, speak to the rock. Um, but Mar- but Aaron was supposed to be an active part and an active presence in that. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the story, when Moses says, see, you rebels, must we draw rock? He's not talking about Aaron, by the way. He's talking about God and him. And so he leaves Aaron in a completely passive role. Mm-hmm. And I think that's. That speaks mm. to a little bit about what you're saying with this wow. inability to allow other people to speak into your life because yeah. you believe that it's that it's driven by you. And so I think more than anything else, and I love our conversations because we never know where we're going to end. Yeah. I think that part of leadership, mm. part of following your call faithfully part of spiritual growth and development and guidance is to find mentorship Mm -hmm. and then to allow your those mentors to speak hard truths and not to relegate we all like to say we have mentors but when but then we relegate them Mm -hmm. to to be spectators in our spiritual life much like moses is doing to aaron so not only find mentors that can speak into your life but allow them an active role allow them to serve as a checks and balance measures for your own spiritual growth. And, uh, yeah. And don't let the numbers fool you into thinking just because you have big numbers, just because you're getting the you know amazing results that you don't need guidance. 
and you don't need people to speak mm-hmm. into your life. Um, yeah, and we're talking about the realm of pastors here and leaders here, but something that Randy brought out in his series on professional is that we are all, I loved his phrase, right. we are all God's priest to someone, mm-hmm. which is so compact but so profound. All of us act as priests. We're the priesthood of, of all believers. We are God's representative to somebody. We are representing God to somebody. Just like Moses represented God to these people, they looked at Moses and that's that's how they learned partially about who God was. Mm-hmm. We are all in that role for somebody. Somebody looks at us and our lives and our actions and our words and they think, well, God is, that's, that's, that's what they're saying about God. They're communicating something about God. So what kind of responsibility does this place on us when the people we interact with, that will be maybe their only interaction with someone that is a Christian or someone who is an Adventist or someone who um, who pers- um, says that I follow God, I follow Jesus. Yeah. What kind of responsibility and burden does that place on all of us, not just pastors, because all of us are priests? Yeah. So that that noise is my knees buckling because it's a huge responsibility. It's an enormous responsibility to be the mouthpieces of the God we serve. And I think that because we recognize how enormous a responsibility it is, we feel ill-equipped for that responsibility. Yeah. And so we began to think about all these moments and instances in our lives when we believe the hype, when we let mm. anger uh, get the best of us, when we weaponized religion, when we said things uh, in order to instill fear in the hearts of people. We remember those and we say, I'm not worthy. Mm. And I love the fact that Jude picks up this story and he says, wait, wait, wait. Yes, Moses made a mistake, and yes, that mistake cost a lot, but that mistake doesn't define Moses' life, and that doesn't define his status eternally and his place before God, because the one that is always trying to remind you of those mistakes Mm -hmm. is the accuser. God says, hey, your past is going to catch up with you, and that's Mm -hmm. good news. Because once you claim Jesus, your past and my past are intertwined. And so my past, the the past that catches up to me, is the past of a babe birthed in Bethlehem Mm -hmm. who grew up um, as Mary and Joseph's son, who was a carpenter, who made easy yokes, Mm -hmm. and who then began a ministry taking people with pasts and saying, your past doesn't define you. I am going to make you fishermen of people. And when you can't fish people anymore, you're going to tend to lambs. And if you and when you can't tend lambs, you are going to be my messengers in Jerusalem, Samaria, and the whole world. And then he resurrected, and he is now sitting at the right hand of God. That's the past that's going to catch up with me. Yeah. And so... I, it's an enormous responsibility, Joey, like you're mentioning. But I think what the passage in Jude really helped me see throughout this week is that the past will catch up with us. Mm. And that's nothing to be afraid of. 
because my past is linked with the past of Jesus. Wow. Wow. I love how last week we were talking about the importance of holding on to the future and moving forward into the future. Mm -hmm. This week we're talking about um, not forgetting the past because the past will catch up to us. But that past that catches up to us is not just our sinful past, but it is the past that Christ reinvents Mm -hmm. for us, that he restores for us. And if we can hold on to that, that truth that it is Christ who restores us, then it all, it keeps us away both from shame on one hand, but on the other hand, from pride and feeling like we've got this on our own. Yeah, because it's not me, right? Mm-hmm. I yell at the rock and I strike the rock and I weaponize religion. And yeah. if left to my own devices, I am going to use religion as a tool to build my own bank account and mm-hmm. to uh, build some power equity and to to do a lot of the same things that we saw, um, sadly, or that we see religious leaders do. Mm. The beauty is that for those religious leaders that have fallen, there is still the chance for restoration. There is still the chance for them to be mouthpieces of God so long as they're willing to allow Jesus's past to intertwine with theirs. Wow. And that, that, takes a while i think the sad thing of a lot about a lot of uh the spiritual leaders that fall um and by this we just don't just mean pastors because as you've stated so clearly we are a priesthood of all believers the sad part is we want uh forgiveness without pain and there mm. is pain there has to be Num- deuteronomy 34 is a painful chapter mm. to read it is a chapter that demands moses take responsibility and experience pain yeah. it just it's the way it has to be and so i i would love uh for two things to happen joey that that i think don't happen enough on the one hand i would love for us to recognize that our past that our past doesn't define us and that means that we need to be intentional about creating pathways for restoration mm. for people that have fallen. Yeah. But I also believe that that path towards restoration necessitates responsibility mm. and accountability. Yeah. And so I think when those two things happen, when we recognize our past, we are able to let his past determine our future. Wow. What a great way to end. Responsibility and restoration. We take responsibility for our mistakes from the past, the broken people that we are, but also take hold to the promise that Christ restores us. Beautiful. Well, Merry Christmas, Joey. We'll see you next year um, because I know that we are going to be on, uh, at least I'm going on vacation, uh, but we will see you uh next year. And will you pray for us one last time here in 2021? Good and gracious God, here as we sit at the end of 2021, looking uh, forward to the new year, we also want to take a moment to reflect on our past, to take responsibility for the ways that we've hurt you, we've hurt people in our lives, the ways that we have defamed your character to the people around us. Forgive us, forgive us and repair us, restore us and make us new again. 
This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being with us throughout a year of pandemic. Thank you for being us now as we have learned to experience faith in 2021 as a merge of physical and digital modes. May God bless you as we start 2022 together, and may you have the desires of your heart, the desires of a heart that is linked to Jesus' past. Thank you.